welcome back to Now. In this podcast, we celebrate all things related to the variously compiled world of pop. As we open up the gatefold vinyl sleeves, unfold the cassette inlays, or slip out CD booklets, we will also consider the wider world of pop culture and how our favourite compilation albums shaped our lives and now fondly stand as time capsules for our own musical journeys. I hope that you will enjoy sharing in the memories and insights. If you do, please spread the word and let me know your thoughts at www.backtonow.music.blog or on Twitter with myself, Ian, at Pop Rambler. So joining me today is Simon Galloway. Simon describes himself as a music anorak and knob twiddler. Um, he is part of the team responsible for the wonderful Smash Hits podcast, The Giddy Carousel of Pop. He is a regular presenter on Radio Free Matlock, where he not only presents a variety of pop, rock and soul classics on his show, The Big Mix-Up, he also holds the accolade of only presenter with his own jingle. And if that's not enough, Simon also celebrates the joy of secondhand musical treasures via his Twitter page at Charity Shop Classics and shares his discoveries on its associated regular radio slot on all FM 96.9. Simon, hello. Hello. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's quite complete. I mean, there's always more that you could mention but that, that'll do for now. I'm sure we'll tease more out as we go on. So, how are you? And importantly, with lockdown easing, have you managed to get back into the charity shops? I've only been into one charity shop so far, and that was to drop some stuff off, but they weren't taking donations. <laughs> They're like, no, you have to phone and book a slot. It's like, oh, okay. Um, so straight in and back out again. Basically, here on Back to Now, the premise is that we get to dig through the world of compilation albums. Let's just talk a wee bit about growing up, what your early music memories were, what influenced your first listening choices yeah I'd, I'd say my earliest memory uh which in, involves music and it's my earliest memory anyway is around about two years old seeing david bowie on top of the pops doing golden years and uh, to me it looked like it must have looked like world of sport the, you know the, the wrestling because it looked like a wrestling ring or a boxing ring to me and uh, and that's how i remembered it and i saw it many many years later probably like 25 years later and it was a real you know proustian rush which is like this is the thing that I saw. It was actually a performance on Soul Train in the USA that was, you know, because uh, quite often on Top of the Pops back in the 70s, they used to show clips from American TV shows if the artists were either, you know, based in America or, you know, there'd, there'd been a performance of a song over there and the artist couldn't get over to the UK to perform it. So that's what they'd done in that instance. But in my mind, my, my two-year-old self was kind of conflating Top of the Pops with World of Sport, you know, and expecting Big Daddy and Giant Haystacks to appear behind David Bowie while he's crooning golden years when i got when i saw the full performance and he also does fame on that uh, edition of soul train as well and he does a, a little interview with don cornelius the the presenter of soul train and bowie is just out of it completely out of it whether he you know <laughs> whatever substance he's using i suspect there's a lot of alcohol involved as well yes. his miming is way off all the way through <laughs> but he looks brilliant but the interview is terrible compilation albums now did these feature in your world growing up uh, absolutely i mean Music was always there for me growing up anyway. I'm the youngest of five kids. All of us 
into music and there's, there's quite a big gap big, big age gap between me me and the others they were all born in the kind of early to mid 60s i was born in, in 73 um so by the time i was like you know four or five years old punk had come along uh, northern soul um one of my brothers was massively into the beatles my sister would be you know liking something something different every week <laughs> and, and my parents were very much into music as well my mom would always have the radio on around the house it being the 70s is uh, a lot of Carpenter's records, ABBA, Glenn Campbell. But also my mum and dad had this box of rock and roll 45s that they'd bought back in the, the late 50s. And, uh, and it was just an absolute treasure trove. And I remember discovering that, that box of records when I was probably about eight years old. And it was just like a mind-blowing experience. But being the youngest of five kids, I got a lot of hand-me-downs. Uh, amongst those you know, were compilations, you know, your typical kind of K-Tel and, and Ronco sort of stuff. And I've, I've dug out a, a load of records to yes. kind of uh, use as memory aids and props as, as we're talking talking about stuff so I've, I've got here um k-tell's get dancing uh, which came out in 1974 cover on this is um essentially the, the backdrop is uh scrunched up tin foil that's then been <laughs> straightened <laughs> out again and, and had a bit of a blue light shone on it and, and photographed and that that was the uh you know no expense spared on that k-tell compilation uh, and that's got you know barry white on there casey and the sunshine band elton john slade bass city rollers all that kind of stuff and the, the other one let's let's balance the k-tell with some ronco, ronco. uh was 20 blazing bullets i saw this earlier when you were just before we came on and started chatting you <laughs> lift up the pile i saw yeah. the silver of that cover sign and i thought <laughs> it that's, it out. that's 20 blazing bullets yeah so. and uh, on on this one not such big hits but one of my you know from when i was little uh, a song that i was obsessed with um jive talking by the Bee Gees, which that's right up. Yeah. side two on this and um yeah that, that was uh, one song that i was obsessed with i also inherited um a biscuit tin full of um roxy music and david bowie singles and when my sister grew tired of things which would usually take about two or three weeks she'd then give me the singles so you know in 1979 it's like she buys um stuff like, like the jacks the stranglers bands like that play them to death and then play the b-side to death and then say i don't like that anymore and give it to me by the time i was like four or five years old old i was already amassing my, my own record collection i was going out and buying things um i was going past the the news agent and picking up x jukebox singles on, on, on my way home from school and and things like that but i think the yeah so the, the, i mean those those ktel and, and ronco compilations were part of my early record collection and then a few years later probably only when i was about nine or ten i was given Motown Chartbusters Volume Three. Now this was a revelation. This wasn't like the K-Tel and Ronco stuff. This was this was amazing. And still, um, the the selection of Motown songs on here, I think, is the best example of Motown in the '60s that you can find anywhere. They they really really capture it on this. Yeah. Um, so I loved listening to that. So that that's when it become becomes for me compilations are almost like a way to access older music because I was I was buying new stuff, listening to lots of it on the radio, hearing lots of it from from my my older siblings. So things like, you know, the, the Motown LP. My dad had a Reader's Digest box set, Golden Hit Parade, which was, um, I mean, it's, it's a classic. You see it quite yeah. often in charity shops, but usually it's out of the box, but you, you need it in the box. So that was an, um, an LP that would cover, uh, there was one LP that covered the 50s, and then there was an LP that was like 1960, 61, 62, 63. Yeah. So each, each LP would be two years and like seven tracks from each year. It goes up to 1973. So I used to listen to that 
an awful lot. Um, so the, these these compilations were almost like music history lessons. And also, I discovered the Guinness Book of British Hit Singles around about the same time. I was about you know nine, ten years old. Found it in a bookshop and was like mind blowing. And what it what these compilations did was help me put songs to the titles that I was seeing in these books. So I'd see you know because they all they always listed the, the number ones. I was like, oh, 1967 number ones. Well, you know, our John's got the Beatles and so-and-so's got this thing. But, oh, if I look on, you know, these these LPs, then, you know, the, the Golden Hit Parade stuff, then I can find more of these songs. So that was, you know, a real kind of broadening of my musical horizons and, and education. But like I said, I was still, you know, still um, very much into buying buying stuff, usually ex-Duke Box singles uh, and taping stuff off the radio on, on a Sunday afternoon in the top 40. It's only very recently, actually, maybe only the last few years, that I've managed to get my hands on all the Motown chart busters on vinyl. You always saw them. I resisted the the Spectrum CD reissues a couple of years <laughs> back because they just, you know, and you get them on vinyl and it was that joy of the dig back in. And, and you're right, if you actually line up those Motown chart busters LPs, they tell an amazing story, particularly from a very UK point of view as well. Like, you know, yeah. Because uh, the Charbusters Volume Three is from 1969, and uh, I think I'm right in saying this: in the in in the UK chart single charts in 1969, Motown had the, the greatest number of singles in the charts than any other label. And a lot of that stuff was um, reissues from years gone by um, because but Motown Mania had, had taken off. And so you're getting, you know, Smokey Robinson, The Miracles, a flop from 1965. It's in the in the top 20 in 1969. Same with The Supremes, The Four Tops. All, all these bands, even though they're putting out stuff contemporaneously, the, the old things were coming back as well. So Martha and the Vandellas dancing in the street, um, which I think came out in 65, big hit in 69. Um, yeah. So so there's this real explosion of Motown music uh, in, in the charts. But uh, along with that, there's a huge explosion of Jamaican music in the charts as well. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I only discovered about 20 years ago the, the, the equivalent, the Trojan uh, chart busters sort of thing. I think they were called Tighten Up, weren't they? Uh, and that's that's their equivalent of the Motown chart busters. And again, just, just capture where that label was at at that time but also where our pop culture was at that time and, and just shine, shining lights on little corners and things. You know, it's, it's much more than kind of Marmalade and, and Edison Lighthouse because the charts in terms of pop music in 69 were what I think people would call quite vanilla. Um, <laughs> My first awareness of, of Motown was probably in the, in the mid-80s because there was that revival period coming through, often fueled by, you know, the advertising companies. You know, we had Marvin Gaye, Benny King, Sam Cooke, all these songs. And that then brought along that kind of second phase of Motown compilation albums, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was, Motown was something that I was aware of as a very tiny kid because of my two eldest brothers would go to Wigan Casino every weekend to the uh, Northern Soul All-Nighters and Motown records were absolutely at the heart of the Northern Soul scene. So they'd come back with, with all these 45s, branch out to like Stax and then yeah. um, you know, the smaller labels and the independent stuff, the stuff that was, was flops. But yeah, interesting you should mention that that 80s kind of revival of, of Motown and, and 60s soul in general. So I've got a, a K-Tel compilation here. It came out in, in 87. After they'd kind of given up on, on doing the, the contemporary hits collections, I think 
think the last one that they did of like, you know, um, hits of the day was probably Hungry for Hits in 1984. Yeah. Then after that, they started to concentrate on single artists, more on single artist collections, but also kind of classic rock and classic pop stuff. And this, this one, Hits Revival, the original hits by the original stars. It's picking out things that's being, that, that are being used in commercials. So you get artists that had had cover versions of these songs in, in the charts or that have been reissued. So like the Rolling Stones did Harlem Shuffle, Tina Turner did Let's Stay Together, Nick Kamen did Loving You is Sweeter Than Ever. Ever. So I think that's, you know, KTEL, after they've kind of caught, shoved out of that kind of pop compilations market, for a few years they did really good stuff like that. That was a way to get hold of music that you really couldn't get anywhere else. And of course, it was such a back catalogue, you know, the Motown stuff or the Stack stuff. You know, I think they knew they were onto something, these companies. But certainly for me, as that um, early collector, it was amazing to be able to get hold of this kind of stuff. And, you know, we're going to talk later on about how, how we did procure this music. It wasn't, often, <laughs> it wasn't often through pound shillings and pence. Been able to get a hold of a vinyl compilation album that had 40 Stax hits or 40 Motown hits, however it might be, was fantastic. And, you know, that's where that kind of compilation market moved into. So let's move on then to a period that we're going to talk about in a bit more depth, the summer of 1985. Why have you chosen this, this period? It's probably my, my kind of peak pop period. When, when I go through my 45s, it's the year that I probably bought the most amount of new pop singles well some new some had to wait a couple of months for them to <laughs> appear in the uh the the, the carousel in the uh, news agent from from the jukeboxes i've got around about 65 singles all released in, in 85 that i bought and one of the big events for me back then as it was for for many people was live aid which kind of expanded my my music world yet again but what what it did was get me into uh, listening to the radio more e- even more than, than i did so already also that year we got a video recorder that was that was in the september and so i was taping top of the pops every week and re-watching it re-watching it so I became an anorak, you know, <laughs> an, an archivist, an audio hoarder. Well, not just audio, but videotapes as well. And I would sit by by the, the video recorder every week during Top of the Pops, you know, with the, the, the pause and record thing, just recording the songs that I wanted, just as I had done for the Top 40 on a Sunday afternoon. But there's one particular memory that I've got from the, the summer of 85. So I'm 11 years old, a couple of months off being 12 years old. In the third year at middle school, uh, we all always went on holiday in June when it wasn't the the school holidays because my parents hated it when when places were busy we went to the same place in in Pembrokeshire in Wales every year the same campsite in St David's you know it would progress from a tent to a trailer tent eventually a caravan so we'd gone away I think it was the middle two weeks of June I've got a very clear memory of the second day that we were there so we would drive down from Sheffield overnight would arrive kind of early Saturday morning Sunday to ease us into the holiday would always go to the beach that was the closest over the cliff tops down to down to a little beach the radio station that you could get the the strongest there that signal you could pick up was irish radio 2 on a sunday afternoon they would have their top 30 show um it wasn't top 40 it was top 30 and i've got this such a vivid vivid memory of walking to the beach across those cliff tops rucksack on with probably like beach games in there but i got my dad's little tandy radio terrible sounding little thing 
but I was listening to the top 30. Um, in fact, I've, I've got a printout of what, what was, uh, <laughs> what was in the, the, the top 30 that day and, and the songs that, you know, that I remember as we were walking across the, the cliff top, Style Council, Walls Come Tumbling Down, Brian Adams, Heaven, China Crisis, King and the Catholic Style, Stephen Tintin Duffy, Icing on the, pay, uh, Icing on the Cake, uh, Prince, Paisley Park, and the, the one that, that really kind of sticks with me, and every time I hear this song, I am back on that cliff top, trying not to trip and fall down the cliffs but listening to the radio and kind of doing a funny walk as I'm listening to it was um, The Word Girl by Squitty Politi which uh, it just in that song I love that song and it immediately takes me that, back to that day in, in Wales uh, that Sunday afternoon it was one of the few sunny days that we had on that holiday 1985 was a pretty rotten summer and yes. our trailer tent got flooded that year um, but just walking down in the sunshine and then Katrina and the waves walking on sunshine comes on David Bowie's still in the top 10 with Loving the Alien and I'm just finished listening to it while, while we're sat on the beach you know um, Gary Moore and Phil Lynott out on the fields Duran Duran A View to a Kill and oh, Bruce Springsteen's number one you know that didn't happen in the UK that, that, that <laughs> this was the Irish charts and it was all, all kind of different so yeah pop music for me in, in 1985 I was yeah it was pretty much my life reading smash it's listening to the charts watching Top of the Pops going out and buying records actually buying the records as they came out when I wanted them but strangely enough I didn't buy the Now albums, even though I, I would have been the perfect customer for them. <laughs> um, I kind of used to look at them and think, well, I've I've got the ones that I like off it. My, yes. my sister's got my, my sister's got the other songs on it that I like. I'll just make my own tape. It's fine. Or friends used to buy them. I'd record them off them. Thinking back to Now Five, which was you know a lot of the tracks you mentioned there pop up on Now Five. I probably didn't own that until much, much later on in 1985 because I had to cobble together pocket money. Mm. Um, and if I'm being honest now, the majority of pocket money I spent was probably on blank cassettes <laughs> for, yeah. Yeah. for exactly what you're <laughs> describing. But basically, that was how we gathered these songs. It was Home through, taping was keeping music alive. That's it what was, it was doing. It, it, it wasn't killing music. It wasn't killing music at all. It's, uh, I do love <laughs> it now the lifeblood. Yeah, <laughs> uh, when you find a charity shop record that's got that sleeve inside it with that wee skull and crossbones and that cassette face, kind of staring out, saying, "Remember, you're stealing." Um, but that was how you know that was how we did it, and um, kind of pieced it all together. It was only much, much later I probably managed to get the now albums bought. But it was that kind of curation element. And you're right, we were curating our own albums. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'd, I'd been, you know, I was obsessed with recording. I got my first tape recorder when I was like four years old. And from that moment on, making my own compilation tapes. Yeah. It's just what no. I did. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and, and, that, and that was how we pieced it together. And uh, my first now was now three. And um, and I remember getting that. I don't even know why we got it, to be honest. It must have been out on a shopping trip and there must have been some reason for it. But uh, I probably just ground my parents down. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you did pour over it very much. As you started to move through your own kind of journey with pop, you'd start to say, those songs sit quite well together, but actually I would have put that there. <laughs> I would have swapped this song for that song. And, you know, this, these arguments rage on now. You know, there's kind of grown men still filling Twitter with uh, tracks that should be here <laughs> and shouldn't be there and everything else. You know, when I think back to my own journey, there was probably the kind of side-by-side -side element of this. You know, you were kind of almost making your alternative world of what these albums and compilations should sound like. Yeah, I mean, I think um, a good Now album 
should be like your you taping your favorite songs off the top 40 that's what i think should make a good now album i think it's kind of interesting now looking back because they are time capsules and i don't know about you but i don't have lots of tdk cassettes around anywhere i've got i've got spotify playlists and i've got you know that type <laughs> of curation but i think that's why there's such a fond memory for these compilation albums because they take people back even even the wrong turns on those albums and the wrong selections you know we all know that the media are very good sometimes at creating a, a kind of parallel version of what 1985 looked like. And the, you know, the warts and all aren't always there. Um, some <laughs> of, I think, you know, the beauty of the BBC for Top of the Pops repeats is that you do get to see the warts, basically. Oh, yeah. I mean, there, there was still a hell of a lot of dross around. And yeah. that, that, was the, that was kind of the, the, the democratic nature of, of the charts. Uh, yeah, all, all these things were, were encompassed in it. And I think 1985 is really the last year in pop music where the charts do represent that kind of wide range of styles that, that, could, that could get into the charts. It was still a time where you could go out and buy your mom a seven-inch single for a birthday or for Christmas, <laughs> and it'd still be you know, a substantial present. Yeah. So you, you would go out and buy a Elaine Page and Barbara Dixon or something like that. And I think that, that kind of disappeared not immediately, but gradually as, as the, the 80s moved on and it became more about what can they manufacture to get into the charts and it became all about aiming at the, the, the teen market and the, the, the younger market to, to try and get them. It was just a competition to see who could you know, best market their songs or hype their songs into the charts and very rarely would you get something you know, of a different nature that, that, that would crash through that eclectic nature, that wide-ranging nature that we'd always known in the charts had gone. And I think 1985, we're starting to see the, the end of that cycle. But I think that the years 78 to, to 85 is just this incredible run for um, yeah. pop music, particularly um, the, the UK charts. Looking at the charts in 1985, I think there was potentially the biggest year for democracy. Some of the big hitters from early 80s, they were starting to falter. So you had Duran Duran splintering into Arcadia and the power station. Spandau disappearing a wee bit. Culture Club, the wheels had come off the wagon slightly. So a lot of these bands were opening up a gap. Wham went about AWOL for 1985, still had the hits, but they were touring China, there was a lot going on. All of this left a gap for a lot of other artists to come in. And that's why I think, you know, that kind of opportunity came about um, for that. I think as well, Top of the Pops format changed a bit in 1985. They introduced the Breakers slot, they were playing a lot more videos. And I think this gave people that opportunity because, as we've said, you forget the influence television and radio had on breaking acts and how a slot on top of the pops could absolutely catapult a song into, into the public consciousness. Yeah, the top of the pops, Radio 1 and local commercial radio and smash it's, you know, You've got your three main uh, media outlets covered there in terms of you know, print, TV and, and radio. And that's what all these pop acts were, were aiming for. So 1985 was quite a marketplace for the compilation album. Up to this point, now had 
very much owned 1984. They had they had launched at the end of '83 and had had three successful albums. And it's fair to say the other record companies saw that there was a chance to make some money out of this. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I think um, 1985 is is the first year that you can see this coming from the the major record labels who are forming partnerships, working together and trying to get their slice of the now pie. Again, there's a whole story around the Christmas 84 issue of, of, of Now 4 basically being completely overshadowed by the first hits album. As you say, they kind of realised, hang on, we're licensing acts out here to somebody that we could be keeping for ourselves. And hits came in and probably shook up now quite a wee bit and kind of gave them that chance. But it meant that the compilation run of 1985 um, actually saw some some big record labels muscling in. The first compilation release, big one, was Hits 2, which came out um, just in the middle of April. Stayed at the top of the charts for six weeks. You look at the track listing on there, there are some big hitters. Yeah, there are some big hitters. It's very US-focused, I think. It's certainly yeah. the, the second album. Well, actually, it's just the first side that seems to be a British artist that, that was kind of like the, the smash hits artist. And then the rest of the other three sides is pretty much American acts. But obviously, CBS and Warners had come together to do these, these hits albums. And... They were American record companies and that was the hits that they were having stateside and, and having success with over here that kind of formed the, the basis of, of this album. But there's still a few EMI tracks uh, amongst the uh, amongst the, 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 the track listing there that have been licensed from EMI, which kind of, I don't know, you, you almost feel like now or Virgin EMI kind of shot themselves in the foot a little bit by waiting so long to get Now 5 out. But I'll, I'll, I'll not jump too far along the timeline. <laughs> In, in some respects, there was a big gap. You wonder what the thinking was at Virgin EMI as these albums were starting to appear. Yeah, obviously the, the next thing you get is the Polygram group of labels yes. coming together, um, released under the, the, the Chrysalis MCA umbrella. The Out Now compilation, which I think came out in May of um, 85. That's right, yep. With, um, with the exclamation mark, don't forget. With the exclamation mark, yeah, that, that contentious now, I believe there was a, a little bit of a, uh, bit of a court case over that. <laughs> and it's, you know, the, the first record on that, the, the first two sides are really, really strong. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, they, they are loaded with a lot of songs that would have been on Now 5, I think. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, had, had there been a, a Now album, as, as we know it, in that spring market, it would have looked pretty much like this with a little bit of hits too, I think. <laughs> yeah. It probably wouldn't have had Sal Solo on it. No. Well, he wouldn't have had Alvin Stardust on it either. Definitely and not. I mean, this this is this is the problem with with Out Now and uh, and the release put out two Out Now compilations in '85 and then I think was never to be seen again. Is that once you get to the the second record, sides three and four, it kind of dips really really quickly and they're, they're kind of stringing out the the last few hits that they've got are, are sort of like dotted about here and there, but. By the time you get to side four and you get the run of Meatloaf, Los Lobos, Sal Solo, Alvin Stardust and the Kane Gang. Nothing it, wrong with any of those artists. No, but, it, but it's also <laughs> worth pointing out to anybody listening, it wasn't even any of their big hits. Exactly. <laughs> okay, because all of those artists are people that, you know, if it was maybe the Russell Harty programme or Wogan and they were on, you'd go, oh, big stars. But I am struggling to remember 
any of those tracks, I have to say. I actually have a great fondness for the Out Now albums because it's almost like somebody trying really hard to impress. And there's a lot of big hits. There's tracks across there like Tears for Fears. Are we saying Glenn Frey or Glenn Fry? I don't know. Tomato. Don't, don't, don't really care. Don't like Tomato, tomato. Anyway. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, Go West on there. The big coup for this and at, at the kind of chart time was 19. Yeah. Because they, they released that album at the time when 19 was number one. So you've, and that, that's always the compilation coup. If you can get an album out that's got the number one hit on it, bang, you're done. Interestingly enough, not a number one album though. No, got to number two. And it sat behind, he says, looking at all his stats and figures, not remembering it all as if it's off the top of his head. It sat behind <laughs> Brothers in Arms. So, you know, you can, you can understand that, I well, suppose. Yeah, you can run, but you can't hide. Now, the next one is a curveball, because the next one is now Dance. Yeah, and, but, and I, think the, I think this is the, this is the mistake. Nobody <laughs> expects the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> right? And now, the album to keep you moving all night long. Now dance the 12-inch mixes. You can leave them all behind. Some flight extended dance versions of 20 smash hits. Now dance the 12-inch mixes. Jump out and get it. What, what, why, why do you think they, they did now dance? I'd, I'd be interested to hear right. your, your take I, on this. I've got, I've got a couple of theories, none of them based on anything other than just hunches, right? There was something to do with the UK dance market was on a bit of an upturn. And there are, there are songs on, on Now Dance that are now long forgotten, but at the time were big dance hits. Now, if you, if you read through the sleeve notes, most of the chart positions are from the record mirror dance chart. I think it's something to do with 12-inch culture. There was something in there that was a bit different. Other than that, that's all I've got. It's a misstep, I think. <laughs> now Dance is, again, like a kind of little cousin that pops up every now and then through the history of Now. It kind of reappears in 86, it then disappears off the map till 89, and then comes back three times in 1990. Well, uh, understandably. Um, yes. You know, when, when they were probably running up against the, uh, the Deep Heat compilations that um, yes. Southstar used to absolutely. do. Absolutely. Um, um, and, and dance culture was absolutely massive then. Uh, but, but in 1985, when you talk about dance music, you know, and you look at, for example, that track listing, the first side is very non-dancey. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, you've got the you've got Easy Lover, Power Station, uh, a very very long twelve inch mix of something like it hot, which you could lose yourself in the Eurythmics, Stephen Duffy, and I'm gonna mention the man who is Baluey Sum. Yeah, um, so that's uh, yeah, Imagination. I think it Im- took them until 1986 to get to get that one into yeah, the charts. So and they really flogged that one. And anyone who's joined the Giddy Carousel will know the great love there is for 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 the sum, <laughs> yeah, as Mr. we will call him, uh, Mr. Sum. Um, what's your theory then on what? I mean, who pitched Now Dance and thought it was a good idea at that point? I think they'd obviously recognised that the Now brand that they developed was was strong was a good thing because if you look at what Ktel and Ronco did in the the 70s and 80s they never stuck with the same name for their hits collections and it was always uh, I've, I've written down a few here 
dynamite, music explosion, power hits. Uh, and then you get to the, the later 70s, early 80s with like disco stars, disco fever, video stars. Uh, and then you get to the early 80s where it's kind of, you know, maybe more kind of film influence, like Raiders of the Pop Charts. And yes. um, I think, what was the, was it Chart Invasion or something like that? It was kind of based on, on Space Invaders, kind of like a, a video game looking. Basically, car- all those compilations in that part of the 80s were all basically about power and invasion. Yeah, <laughs> these, yeah. These, these albums were bursting into your house. But yeah, you're well, right. I, th- I think, yeah, I think they would have put, you know, by, by the time there was, they were getting to the, the early 80s, uh, maybe 82, 83, by the time Now comes along, I think they were probably really struggling to, to find names that would represent the dynamic nature of these LPs. And that was, that was their undoing because they never stuck with the same name. Now got that magic formula, which they absolutely capitalised on. Like, say, 1984, they put out three compilations, but then, uh-oh, new kid on the block. We've got um, CBS and Warner's wanting, wanting to get in on the action and upsetting the apple cart with hits. Very quickly followed with hits two in, in April. Now were possibly struggling to licence the tracks that they wanted and thought, well, we've got to get something in the shops We've got to get, you know, we've got to represent now in the shop somehow. What can we do? Ah, 12-inch mixers, they're a big thing. Personally, I'm not a 12-inch mix fan. Uh, some of them are okay, but particularly at the, that time in the mid-80s when remixers were starting to become the thing. And it was just to get another format into the shop so you could get another mark on your chart return. They weren't really remixes. They were what we'd now know as re-edits and you know, just repeating yeah. the same bits. And you know, I used to do them on, on, on cassette with the pause button and things <laughs> like that. If you, if you got an instrumental version of so uh, Simple Minds Alive and Kicking, instrumental version on the B-side, we've got a nice a cappella intro. Yes. Um, so you, you had cut, cut that in and you know, flip it over do a bit of the the a side flip it back do an instrumental section so i think it's the now team wanting to get product out there realizing that hits one you know it's kind of upset things hits two is already out there they know that polygram are doing out now and they've got 19 paul hardcastle on there the big number one and they've got tears for fears everybody wants to rule the world a massive number two that yeah. that year you know on, on most charts in some charts it did actually get to, to number one and i think it's literally getting some product out there now i'd forgotten about this lp and when i was initially looking looking down i'm thinking right because i've you know i've picked up these as i mentioned earlier i didn't buy them at the time but i picked them up in charity shops over the years to play on on charity shop classics because they are a fantastic source of you know you want to drop in either you know a, a classic 80s banger or something that people might have forgotten then out now <laughs> out the out now lps are perfect for that yeah. sort of thing but yeah I, th- I think it was literally to to get some product out there because they couldn't necessarily license the tracks that they wanted to, to do to do a full 30 track now LP and kind of shot themselves in the foot when it came to doing now five later on in the year. The track listing, it's not fallow. <laughs> <laughs> but there's particularly across out now and even even I suppose now dance if you were to cut them down to seven inches there's tracks that should have been on now five um, yeah. as I say you know, you know you would absolutely pull Tears for Fears you would you would have Go West on there you'd have Paul Hardcastle probably the Thompson Twins you know Phyllis that. Nelson move closer another, another uh, number one abs- absolutely and you know and from now dance itself uh, I think Loose Ends would probably have been on there the Ra Band but having said that the now dance album made number three in the national mm. charts so you know again remembering this is prior to any kind of compilation split chart it was the third best-selling album in britain at a time when you probably had to shift a lot of units as well so yeah. 
as you say, the brand was already, and I suppose if anything, they were maybe missing out on tracks, it proved to the team, we've got a brand here. Big Biggie's back. Now that's what I call Music 5. 30 chart dogging hits on one posh double album with Marillion. Phil Collins and fine young cannibals. Cool and the gang and spritty politics. Now five and make it big. Which takes us then to the first post-Live Aid compilation album. Not that you'd know particularly on Now Five. It's not an angle that that they kind of play on a lot, but out of the, what is it, 30 tracks that that are on there, 11 of the artists did play at Live Aid. Some of those songs were played at Live Aid. Yeah. But it's it's interesting uh, that, that this album came out uh, beginning of August, so you know, probably like two or three weeks after, after the concert. So I imagine that most of the licensing for these tracks was pretty much done in the bag, and so Live Aid wouldn't have had kind of too big a, an impact on there. They were more focusing on trying to make sure that they got at least a couple of number one singles on yeah. there. And the majority of the songs on Now 5 do come from June and July of 85, but some of them they go back as far as February. So you get David Bowie and the Pat Metheny group, This Is Not America, from February. Bowie had had another single out since then. Would a more recent hit from Bowie have been a better inclusion? That was Loving the Island. Would, would that have been a better inclusion for this? I think so. Yep. I'm, I'm, I'm a massive Bowie fan, but I've always been left a bit cold by This Is Not America, and that's not any reference at all to it being from The Falcon and the Snowman. Paul Young, Every Time You Go Away. But they are looking back o- over quite a few months to pull this one together and missing out on some, some big hit. Um, yeah, so you've got Duran Duran on there with A View to Kill, and you've got Frankie from Sister Sledge, yeah. probably my least favourite Sister Sledge song I ever. hate that song. I, I hated honestly, it then. And I, it's, yeah. <laughs> those, those, see those finger clicks on a radio yeah. station and you just think, oh no. <laughs> but given the, the track record of a band like Sister Sledge through the yeah, years... Yeah, because it's still, still working with Niall Rogers as well. Yeah. You think, what's going on there? It's uh, Niall on the back foot Rogers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, you remember the sequencing a lot of these tracks. I mean, for example, you were talking about Scritty Politi earlier on. When I hear the end of A View to a Kill, I know that the word girl's coming up next. Green Gartside is fading out that track. I'm expecting Axel F. That's what now do, and I suppose that's that's the good memory because you've got to remember these these albums found their way into lots and lots of houses. And I think that's what creates the memories for people moving forward. I don't know if we get the same thought process around the Conway Brothers, for example, on side three. <laughs> but that, actually, that side three, once we sideline Sister Sledge, there's quite a nice wee run of summer hits from 1985. You've got History by Mai Tai, which is a brilliant. They're, well, they're kind of one and a half hit wonders, Mai Tai, but ten. <laughs> one. Uh, Simply Red on there, you've got Feel Surreal, which is just like sunshine in a glass from Steve Arrington, which is fabulous. And then you've got Jackie Graham's first solo hit as well. The real gem of a kind of hit in the post, well, we couldn't get 19 by Paul Hardcastle, but we have managed to get Rory Bremner doing <laughs> a very, very of its time dated pastiche of cricket commentators. Nana, two ends, 19 not out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, if there was anything that kind of epitomises how now needed to get a hold of the market again, that's probably that track there. 
Yeah, I, th- I think that's all, the, the only misstep of, of the the entire album. I'd put Frankie down as a misstep, but that's because I hate the song. Like, yeah. I hate, hated it at the time. It just it immediately you know, put me on edge. Uh, it, it, as a you know, 11, 12-year-old, you either like something or you don't. There's no kind of finer points <laughs> in, yeah, in between no. there. I still feel the same about Frankie by Sister Sledge. Not helped by, there was a kid at school who used to sing it a lot and he was a bit of a bully. He used to pick on me a, a little bit, but he'd sing, he'd sing the wrong tune to it. He'd go, Frankie, like, <laughs> It's just, um, yeah. And of course, I mean, again, it was a massive hit as well, which, you yeah. know. I, don't, um, I yeah, just don't understand it. No, absolutely. So, <laughs> if, somebody can, if somebody can enlighten me. <laughs> yeah, anybody, please get in touch and tell us The Saving Grace of Frankie by Sister Sledge. So that was, that was a five-week number one yeah. um, in the album chart. 26th of October, out now, bounces back with two... Two exclamation marks. Two exclamation marks, just in case you were at any dubiety of the number volume, with a so 1985 colour scheme of electric blue and pink, which is just, it's just incredible. Where there may have been some track dubiety on Out Now 1 is absolutely duplicated tenfold. (laughs) On, on Out Now 2. However, this is an album that definitely has a Live Aid impact on it. Side one, track one, money for nothing. So you're straight yeah. out of the traps with yeah. you know somebody who really benefited from, from Live Aid. And, and also from one of the biggest selling albums of the year. Did you ever hear Brothers in Arms in a, a hi-fi store? No, but <laughs> the first thing I ever heard on CD was Brothers in Arms. Brothers in Arms, yeah. Uh, we, we, we went to visit some relatives in, in London, you know, and a bit, bit flash down there, you know, down south and all that. And uh, my uncle Pete had a, he got the first person in our family to get a CD player. Sure enough, sitting there, Brothers in Arms, sticks it on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, so you've got Out Now 2, only made number three. Notable because you've got Midjure If I Was, which again was snapped up for Now 6 later on in the year. Uh, you've got Billy Idol twice. A few that, again, would have been absolutely lined up for Now 6, you would imagine. The, the Now 6 really would have benefited from, say, uh, Princess, Samuel, number one, Style Council, The Lodgers, I Can Dream About You by Dan Hartman. That would fit brilliantly on, on an L album. Such a great song. <laughs> yeah. And, and <laughs> K- Kern Labram's Trapped yeah. and uh, Rennie and Angela, I'll, I'll Be Good. You know, yeah. there's so much um, great contemporary soul coming out in 85. Um, and, and, and I think that they would have fitted on, you know, because I think Cameo are on now six. Yeah. And they would they would have fitted on, you know, you know Absolutely. Hand, in, hand in glove. Poor out now too. I mean, it did try hard. But <laughs> side four is just... Yeah, so um, go go west. Uh, boring hit. Goodbye, girl. Which <laughs> yeah. is like the ballad. Uh, yeah. I mean, um, the damned. I don't know who was doing the marketing for the damned, but my goodness, they they did well. They did have a bit of a kind of pop run for the damned, I suppose. But they're yeah, on there. 85, 86. Yeah, they, they were yeah. Yeah, fre- frequent visitors to to the chart. The alarm collage. Adele Bertai, she'd pop up later on with Jelly Bean a couple of years later, yeah. but certainly on her own. Yeah, I would imagine there was maybe a marketing meeting, maybe kind of early 86, where they said, are we going to make out now three? And there'd probably be a big pause, and then they'd say, anyway, let's move on. So, before we get to now six, we get to another example of the now brand branching out, and we get the first now Christmas album. Yeah, and th- this is uh, an, in- an interesting one. It feels, and I have to say, it feels like it should have been a music for pleasure compilation. <laughs> 
simply because you, you get, particularly on, on side two, Johnny Mathis, Bing Crosby, Mud, the Beach Boys, th- this old stuff really sticks out. Yeah, not, a, not at one with the other tracks that are on there. But saying that, they get Band-Aid. Uh, and then the Christmas perennials, you know, you're never going to get a bigger Christmas than Christmas 1973. No. So you get Wizard and Slade on there. But the other big Christmas was Christmas 84. So Band-Aid and Wham with Last Christmas as well. The Queen, thank God it's Christmas. So you can see why, why they did that. Christmas 84 had been a big Christmas for a lot of artists were gunning for the, for those Christmas hits. So it was released on the 30th of November, 1985. So we're talking a whole week before Now 6. Got number one for two weeks over, over the Christmas period, not surprisingly. You know, you take that, that first Now Christmas album, it became the blueprint for so many other Christmas compilation albums. Yes moving forward so yeah. so, so, so we had and, and, and really it was it was the first time that these songs had been brought together yeah on a mainstream compilation so this was the first one really to gather together the more modern christmas songs and also a couple of classics you know i, I may be being you know a, a little bit disingenuous <laughs> by slighting bing crosby and johnny mathis how else were you going to end a Christmas LP? You've got yeah. to end it with, with White Christmas. And, you know, it's, it's, Absolutely. It's, 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 it's up there in terms of you know, greatest Christmas songs of all time. So that takes us to Now 6, which came out 7th of December. Hits released Hits 3 on the exact same day. If you take the 12 months previous, when hit, you know, the first Hits album came out, it ran away with the number one slot. Not the case this year. You've got Now 6, top of the tree, four weeks, basically just tag-teaming with its own Now Christmas. So they're probably a very good office party virgin emi 1985 because they've yeah. cornered the market they've 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 regained it um and hits three takes up the slightly dumper position of number two <laughs> um, behind now six and sits there like a bridesmaid for the whole christmas period in a way with both the hits albums from 85 when you look at them it almost feels like they've they've got the edge over the now albums hits hits three you know, leads with "Aha, Take on Me." That that was you know where the future of pop was going, and you know that was theirs, and there was no way that they were going to let EMI and Virgin have that on their now LP. There is a very big live feel to Now Six as well. Um, so you've got Nick Kershaw, you've got Simple Minds, Tina Turner, Brian Adams, Elton John, Cliff as well. Who you know, let's let's not forget he made his mark on Live Aid. Yeah. Albeit 3am <laughs> Albeit 3am uh, When some people's videos were turned off But that's another story <laughs> But there we go I think what's interesting about Now 6 Is the look of it Now 5 is an explosion in a paint factory Now 6 has this brand look all of a sudden Now 5 has a feel of smash hits about it I think mm. In that it's using the, the logos and the typography That the bands themselves would use on their own sleeves. So it feels like, in a way, it ties it closer to the bands that are on the album. But it is, it is very busy. I think, is it the uh, the, the last appearance of the pig on, on, on the front sleeve? Yes, the pig makes its last appearance properly on, on Now 5. It wasn't really around for very long. No, but it's how the albums were launched on, on the TV ad. Yeah. And that's something that I clearly remember. And this this coming on the telly at a time when a lot of compilation albums would be advertised on telly. Um, yeah. So you, you would get the K-Tel, you know, the, the Raiders of the Lost Charts and some guy, you know, pretends to be Indiana Jones with a you know, few potted plants peering through them to make it look like he's in, in the jungle. Buy part one, get part two free and, and that kind of thing. So when Now came along, there were very memorable adverts because it led with 
led with the music and the pig and that yeah. that was the the only gimmick and it felt like you were getting something that was just a cut above even from those adverts you were just getting something a cut above from what what you were getting with ktel ronco and telstar yeah because it, it, it was even pushed that you know it, it was virgin emi you would see that on you know on the the, the, the adverts in smash it that logo would be there quite clear so you knew that this was coming from the record companies themselves. And I mentioned that box of 45s that my mom had, uh, mom and dad had uh, from the 1950s. And they're all in their original sleeves. And I, I would go through them and I would notice that Columbia, Parlophone, his master's voice, Mercury, were, were all EMI labels. And that Decca, London and Coral Records were all from Decca Records. And then you get Pi, Pi Nixa, Pi International. They were all from Pi. So I had a real interest at a very young age in in record labels and ownership who owned those labels so seeing seeing those albums come out and seeing that virgin emi logo i was like right okay that's, was that's a, well, proper that is there was a, yeah there was a quality element to it um and you know they they adopted on, only for the two albums for now six and seven this feel the quality brand line yeah where, where they sort of going with yeah it kind of looks like different fabrics that are on the uh, yeah on the sleeve the tv advertising was was a big thing smash hits had a lot to do with the advertising as well because when you start to know the the release schedule for now albums which sadly i did um <laughs> you know that was almost the kind of quality aspect as well because obviously virgin emi paid for a full color double page spread from about now six onwards i almost sadly knew exactly where it came in the edition of smash hits yeah. <laughs> I, I i could have told you it, it was it was usually the first 12 13 pages it was it was that element to yeah. catch you it wasn't stuck at the end yeah and, and it, they were quite minimal from from memory so it'd just be whatever the the artwork would be for that album yeah but kind of spread out like say spread out across the two pages oh yeah you'd either get you know feature including these bands or you get the full track list but the advertising was a big big thing that was something that actually eventually marked out uh, the now albums from the hits i think in the you know the way they branded them and there was a real feel of curation you know that word's thrown around a lot nowadays curation but it felt that way Um, i mean the the hits albums as well it never felt like the they settled into the series they were always changing the image and certainly with the the first few albums it looks like kind of look a bit k-tel ronco-ish yeah It's, it's very kind of bright artwork and i guess that's to contrast the more kind of you know the, the darker nature of, of you know the simple kind of almost black and white with a splash of color that, that you get with the now albums let's talk a bit about tracks then memorable tracks for you simon some of the sequencing on there and i think importantly as well what is missing from now five for you you do get a sense of the big movies of the time because obviously music and films by that point in the 80s you know they were you know, kind of like going hand in hand weren't they and that that would last for, for quite a few years so you've got duran duran view to a kill um acts left from beverly hills cop um simple minds from the breakfast club and also the the david bowie track that was in um the snowman and the falcon or is it the Falcon and Snowman? But I think ones that really stand out to me, and I would have to go straight away for Scritti Politti, The Word Girl. I just love that song. And and, and I think that, um, that this LP really captures that my summer holiday 
that that year, that kind of holiday in Wales, and then kind of what happened you know, over the next few weeks up to the break of, up of school in, in July. And and this this just captures it really well. I think Finding Cannibals, Johnny Come Home, brilliant single. Brian Ferry, Slave to Love. I was a massive Roxy Music fan. Yeah. He was back with a, a new single. Uh, Simple Minds, Don't You Forget About Me, a record that my brother bought, but I you know, put it onto one of my C90s. Interestingly, that was first offered to Brian Ferry and he turned it down. Uh, That's and, right. Yeah, and, and that could have been his kind of big comeback hit. But you know, when you hear Simple Minds do it, you can't, you can't even no. imagine how Brian Ferry would have done that song. I've, like got, a, I've got some sort of thought Billy Idol was often offered that as well. Now I don't know if that's true. Quite or not. possibly because he was working with the same producer. That's Keith right. Forsey. Yeah. Keith Forsey. Yeah. So, yeah. but no, it's so ubiquitous with Simple Minds now that song. Yeah, I mean, I guess they took it and arranged it for themselves and, and turned it into a, a Simple Minds song. But you can't imagine you know, this kind of ethereal kind of Brian Ferry no. take on it with, you know, this, this sort of like, you know, the, the, the kind of sort of mild funk backings that, that you, you like to do at, at that time and just sounding yeah, almost a, a little bit, you know, like ambient rock kind of thing. I, and I just, just can't imagine how, how that would have sounded. I think Jackie Graham, Round and Round, a song that I'd forgotten about, uh, I'll be honest, but uh, when listening through to this album, I thought, wow, this is great. And it, it was a record that my sister bought at the time. Um, she was well into the all the kind of soul stuff that was being released uh, around then. And uh, the other one that I absolutely love on this album is Style Council, Walls Come Tumbling Down. Yes. The lyrics yeah. are amazing, still pertinent to this day, if, if you're of that political persuasion. Just a fantastic, fantastic song, a great pop song and a great protest song. And uh, still one like I said absolutely love it to this day it's an absolutely strong collection of songs it and is considering considering the songs that they missed out on yes yes they still managed to pull together something that I think works really well it may not have been the biggest hits by some of the bands that are on there from that year but it's so evocative and I think yeah. that's that's what you get with songs that aren't necessarily the, the biggest hits because you're not always going to hear them you know if, if you're a fan of absolute 80s you're not going to hear In Too Deep by um, no. Dead or Alive no. on no. regular rotation you'll hear Spin Me Round yeah. probably played at, at Infinitum but In Too Deep that's it's next to Acing on the Cake which is, which again is a it's a fantastic track and not a massive chart hit and certainly no. not the one that would be played most by Stephen Duffy nowadays. But it's that time capsule element, you know, we talked about that earlier, this being able to actually see a snapshot in time, which now does so well, regardless of what volume you're looking at. What would your home version of Now 5 look like? Would it have differed? Yes, it would have differed. So looking at this, I, I would, uh, if, if I was doing that kind of, you know, selective take on on uh, on the now now five album you, you generally get about 24 songs on, on a c90 so sister sledge straight out the commentators uh gary moore and phil in it jimmy nail yeah. su- such a such a downbeat closer to the album i wouldn't have included the damned um and that that would have probably got me there would have maybe missed off cherished by cool and the gang i was doing a bit of mental mass as you're working through that's almost a good side and a half of a cassette i would imagine perhaps yeah maybe. i mean well th- those singles that that works out you know, I've, I've done the maths here that's 12 songs so that would have been around about a side of a c90 yeah. but i do have um i don't have many of my uh, old compilation tapes left from um from the 80s but i do have pop hits 1985 volume one uh, on a TDK D90. So this is almost like the best bits of Now 5, Out Now, 
yeah. and hits too. But this was all from from my singles and, and records that we had in the house at the time. So we've got Phil Phil Bailey and Phil Collins, Easy Lover, Art of Noise, um, Close to the Edit, Stephen Tintin Duffy, Kill, uh, Kiss Me, Killing Joke, Love Like Blood, Simple Minds, Don't You Forget About Me, Tears for Fears, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, David Bowie, This Is Not America, China Crisis. So all those songs, you know, a lot of those songs that, that I mentioned uh, appear on this tape. I mean, there's a few stragglers from, from 84 on there, Strawberry Switchblade, Kirsten McCall. But it is, you know, very similar in in feel and spirit to to these these types of compilations and i would have made this to to go on my summer holidays i would just rounded up the singles i've got got lying around sat in front of the uh, in front of the hi-fi finger on the pause button and uh, just discovered then as well that um if you you know stop stop the record playing with with your hand <laughs> right at the intro then turn it back three turns then let it go and it goes one turn two turn let the pause off one turn song starts yes that, that way you could make the absolute most of every second of blank tape <laughs> there's a few big big songs that are actually missing across the whole lot of albums hmm. slave to the rhythm by grace jones is yeah. nowhere similarly on ztt you've got dual by Propaganda. Yeah, that's, that's on my list as well. In Between Days by The Cure. Boys of Summer by Don Henley. Yeah, that's also on my list, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I, again, you, know, you look at Now Five, that would have slotted fantastically into side four. Um, yeah, yeah that would have been a good one for side four. Would have also been a good one for the first Out Now compilations. I think Geffen were being distributed by Polygram at that point. I may be wrong, yeah, but I think they'd switched from Warners so. to, to, to Polygram, which then became Universal. And that, you know, they could have just stuck that next to, to um, The Heat Is On by Glenn Fry. There you are. You've got your, your um, Eagles bandmates back together filming compilation form. One as well that I thought was missing is the great lost ABBA track, I Know Him So Well. <laughs> yeah. There's a, a kind of a, a late contender that arrives on the scene at the end of 1985, and that's, um, surprisingly, from Telstar, who put out the greatest hits of 1985. So, as with my tape, a couple of stragglers from, from the end of 1984, Ghostbusters, David Cassidy, The Last Kiss, Strawberry Switchblade, Switchblade um, Since Yesterday. And there, right at the end of side four, Elaine yep. Page, Barbara Dixon, I Know Him So Well. Was it enough of a pop tune to fit on a now album, or is it a bit too, bit too of a mom and dad yeah. tune between these albums? So the two hits albums, the two out now albums, the two main now albums. Throw now dance into into the mix as well, and the, and Telstar's greatest hits of nineteen eighty five, and you've got pretty much yeah. nineteen the, you know the major hits of nineteen eighty five yep. covered. In, uh, in this, this series of albums, probably no other year that you could do that with. I think the the compilations market had been kind of revitalised and energised by now. Labels were copying that f- format and formula, and they were all dipping their toe into that water. How can we do this? And you know, as we've already seen, some are more successful than others. When I think back to 1986, it's there's something missing from pop music that year. And it's not just the, the artists who maybe had come to the end of their, their time on, on the, the giddy carousel, for, for want of a better better word, but Neil Tennant describes it as the, the imperial phase. Yes. And, that, you know, and, and you're lucky to get about three years out of that. Maybe there was just kind of like a, a natural cycle going on in that there's kind of like a vacuum that's created. We... we quite quickly lose those stars that we'd had kind of 82 through to 85 
And like I say, whether it was the end of their natural life cycle or not, I don't know. There's no one coming through to take their place. Five star, maybe, but there's a, there's a lot of one hit wonders in 1986 that yeah. don't just that, that really don't bring any substance to the pop party. And the important thing that happens in 85 is the CD. Record companies realize that, oh, hold on a minute, we can start putting out the old stuff and charging a premium for it again. And so that looking back, and I think that's where, that's where nostalgia starts. The artists, the record labels, the management, wherever it came from, are looking back and saying, right, all this stuff that we've been selling mid-price for years, you know, once, once it's kind of you know, made its return on its, on its investment on, on initial release, it then gets moved into the mid-price category. Hold on a minute, we can put this on CD and then bump it back up to, to full price. So there's that whole kind of nostalgia market that, that moves in as well with the, the older acts, the established acts, the, you know, the, the rock royalty. The whole of Now 5 does have a very British, a very UK uh, top 40 feel. And the other thing that I think is, is good on, on this album is that it's, it's including quite a few first hits, debut hits from bands that were, that were new on the scene. So you've got Simply Red and Jackie Graham, already mentioned, but Fine Young Cannibals as well straight in there sitting really well holding their own really well against acts that have been around you know a couple of years already duran duran paul young but also your rock royalty in the form of brian ferry david bowie and uh, and phil collins as well so i think in in looking at that it's a lovely spread of music uh, no it's, it's, it's a good range of music from artists that are at different stages in their careers all having hits whether it's their first hit or it's their fifth hit or it's you know they've been having hit singles for 15 years honorable mention as well not to talk too much about no sex <laughs> there must have been a bit of excitement when they licensed the second paul hardcastle track the big paul hardcastle comeback <laughs> <laughs> we'll just leave that there will we i don't know if you've listened to just for money recently i, I have uh listened to, to just for money for for research purposes and only yeah, it's, it's, it's it's a, a proper duffer but no I, I once um yeah I've, I've worked in in radio for for many years I once spent a day with paul hardcastle as he was uh it got a, a greatest hits album out and he was doing a round of interviews to radio stations up and down the country, but they were doing it down the line, as they call mm. it. So, um, oh, he, he, I mean, he was a lovely guy, but oh man, he can't have talk. <laughs> Ten to the dozen. And uh, yeah, I, I just got, got my first speed, my, my first and only speeding fine for accidentally driving through some roadworks at too high a speed on a motorway. In Essex, though, and Essex police at the time were very, very hot on, on giving out speeding fines. Oh, so, you know, just chatting, tell him about this because he's very much into his car and I know nothing about cars so I just thought you know what can I talk about here so I just mentioned that I said here's how you can get out speeding fines he's giving me all these hints and tips (laughs) now there's a podcast in waiting there pop stars and how to beat the system Um, yeah fantastic 1985 isn't remembered as the best year in pop music. No. And I would agree, it's, it's not the best year in pop music. But, you know, we, we, we can use selective memory and remember all the good stuff, but there was still a hell of a lot of, uh, a, hell of a lot of dross around. But at 85, it's, 
yeah, it's it's a special year for me, and that's why it's my favourite year of the eighties for pop music. It coincided with my peak interest in in pop music, and and after that, it, my my interest started going elsewhere within music, but started going elsewhere. And maybe you know, maybe that's another reason why pop music after nineteen eighty five didn't have that same feeling for me, literally because I was just growing up. Simon, thank you so much for joining me today to reminisce around. 1985 in particular to look at now five yeah not a problem and enjoyed it tremendously and and it's been quite a journey looking at that timeline of 1985 through that prism of compilation albums and i'd kind of never i've never put it all together before so it's been really interesting kind of and well just imagining what the record company politics and legal departments were like during during 1985 no thank you so much for sharing your own stories and your own anecdotes and memories i've really enjoyed it and it's been great having you on board thank you so much not a problem thanks for inviting me a positive jamboree of pop and a fascinating year for the increasingly competitive compilation market. I hope that you enjoyed the journey with Simon and I back to Now 5 and beyond. Further compilation reminiscing continues on Twitter with myself, Ian, at Pop Rambler, and I look forward to sharing more musical memories again with you very soon. Take care and goodbye. (laughs) 